Turn your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Actually, let's back up two chapters to chapter 1 just to gain the context of where chapter 4 falls in. Chapter 1, verse 2, we have the theme verse, as it were, of Ecclesiastes. Solomon says with exclamation, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. He's saying here, trying to make sense of life in a sin-cursed world, it's really hard. And from a fallen human standpoint, it's impossible. It's a frustrating mystery. And then in verse 3, kind of lays out the plan for the, the first section that runs from chapter 1, verse 3 to chapter 6. What profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? What makes life worth living? Is there anything in life that gives someone an advantage, a leg up? And he's gone through several different circumstances. That brings us then to chapter 4. And chapter 4 follows immediately what he just admonished in chapter 3, verse 22. So look at that. Chapter 3, verse 22. He said, So I perceived that nothing is better than that a man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his heritage. For who can bring him to see what will happen after him? A man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his heritage. You can enjoy, you can enjoy and should enjoy the results of your work and your accomplishments from a God-centered point of view. And from that, Solomon then turns his gaze and attention to something else, verse chapter 4, verse 1. So he's just said, you can judiciously, you should judiciously enjoy the accomplishments of life. And then he says, chapter 4, verse 1. Then I returned, I turned and considered all the oppression that is done under the sun. And look, the tears of the oppressed, but they have no comforter. On the side of their oppressors, there is power, but they have no comforter. And from that, he draws a conclusion, verses 2 and 3. Therefore, I praise the dead who are already dead, more than the living who are still alive. Yet better than both is he who has never existed, who has not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. What a sunny passage. Uh, the temptation would be to skip over this and go to a sunnier passage. But the fact is, is that there is difficulty in life, isn't there? And it makes chapter 3, verse 22, a challenge. How can I enjoy the good things of this life that I've accomplished if they're all ripped away from me and I'm made to do more? That's what Solomon's talking about here. He first makes an observation. If you're following along in your handout, he makes an observation in verse 1 that unjust oppression 
prevents one from enjoying light. You see how I'm tying in what he said here in verse 1 with what he just said in the previous verse in chapter 3, verse 22. Unjust oppression prevents one from enjoying light. Now, you'll note in your handout, I've added a word that Solomon didn't include here. Solomon just said the word oppression. That's all he mentioned, oppression. He didn't use that you word that I've added here. And what's that you word? Unjust. So why did I add that? Well, do we hear much about oppression in our day and age? We sure do, don't we? There are many who, on the one hand, say that there are forms of denial and opposition and even resistance, oppression, because you're against gay marriage. And so, therefore, you're oppressing us. And then in the next breath, they will engage of oppression of the worst kind. Abortion. The same individuals. So they have a skewed, a perverted, a distorted understanding of oppression. That's why I have added this word unjust. Because it is wrong. And we... Thankfully, I don't have to say I'm adding to the scripture because Solomon describes it in verse 3 as the evil work that is done under the sun. I could have said evil oppression, but I want to just draw that out so that we could see that there. This is what he is talking about. Oppression that is evil. Let's consider first this unjust oppression where he sees oppression, the tears, the oppressed, oppressors with power. What is this kind of oppression? This is talking about the evil use of power. That's how one man defined it. The evil use of power. Another defined it as organized cruelty. Organized cruelty. And these are both helpful definitions to help you see what Solomon sees. And he had quite the ability to see from his position as king. He could see it happening around. He could see it in the various nations. Evil use of power and organized cruelty. The Mosaic Law forbade this from happening. In Deuteronomy 24, 14, the Lord said, You shall not oppress a hired servant who's poor and needy, whether one of your brethren or one of the aliens who's in your land within your gates. You have the power. You are their master. And you shall not use that in an evil way against them. Oppressors who have power wrongly use it, cruelly use it against those who are weak. This is contrary to several things. This is contrary first to God's plan for humanity. Remember what God's plan for humanity was in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28? 
you will subdue what? You will subdue the earth and have dominion over it. And that is a perverted, this kind of unjust oppression is the perversion of God-given ability. Instead of subduing the earth and uh, having dominion over the earth, they're using that to subdue others made in God's image. And that is a perversion of it. A second thing to consider is that this is contrary to God's nature and law. This is contrary to God's nature and law. Here you could write down Leviticus 19.18. That is repeated throughout the scriptures. And you know this. You might not know it. It might not come to your mind. But as soon as I say it, start it, you'll remember it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Unjust oppression. Cruel. Evil use of power is contrary to the very nature of God who gives and God's very law who says you shall love your neighbor as yourself. One last way, and we could keep going, I could keep going on here, but one last way that this is contrary to the Lord is this is contrary to God the Son's own example This is contrary to the very example of the Son of God that we read about in Philippians 2, verses 6 and 7. Who being in the form of God, and I'm going to expand the meaning here so you can see the point. Being in the form of God, he did not consider his equality with God to be used for his own ends, but made himself of no reputation And what did he do? He took the form of a bond servant. Unjust oppression is contrary to the very person of Jesus Christ, who had all this power and didn't use it to subjugate, to accomplish his own ends, but he used it so that he would become a bond servant. Unjust oppression is the evil use of power against those who are weak. And Solomon then sees, number two, that there are all kinds of unjust oppressions. Because he says in verse one, I returned and considered all the oppression that is done, here it is, under the sun. All kinds of unjust oppressions. How long do we have to list different kinds of evil oppressions. We don't have enough time because it's been going on since the beginning of humanity, since man fell into sin. But I need to give some examples, don't I? In Scripture, we have the example of when the Israelites were oppressed by the Egyptians. And you could go there to Exodus chapter 1. The Egyptians dealt shrewdly with the Israelites afflicted them with burdens, made them serve with rigor, made their lives bitter with hard bondage. Later in Israel's history, after God would deliver them from Egypt, bring them into the land, Israel would, many Israelites did the exact same thing, sadly. 
You had wealthy, rich, powerful Israelites that would squeeze and milk the poor for all that they had. Let me give you two passages from prophets. The first is Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 13. Jeremiah twenty-two thirteen. 13. Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness, his chambers by injustice, who uses his neighbor's service without wages and gives him nothing for his work. So you had wealthy landowners forcing the poor to build up their wealthy establishments and give them nothing in return. Using them. And then Amos chapter 4 verse 1. Amos chapter 4 verse 1. Hear this word, you who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor and crush the needy. Those are two examples from Scripture. What about in our own time? Well, we don't have to go far. Think of the genocide that happened under the Third Reich during World War II. The genocide in Rwanda by China, by Pol Pot. And if you don't know that one, it shows I'm a little older than you then. Think about the children right now who are sold into prostitution, pornography, war. They're made to be soldiers, children, and slavery. Anywhere from 150 to 200 million children right now working in mines with chemicals and dangerous machinery. We don't see that, and so we don't think of it. But this world with 7 billion people is a cruel place. Think about abortion. with the most helpless of individuals is lost for the sake of a perceived right. It's easy to find unjust oppression out there, isn't it? But sadly, there is even unjust oppression in churches when there are dictator pastors who lord it over a flock. Or dictator parents who instead of giving loving, nurturing care wield a rod of hate and oppression over their children. There are all kinds of unjust oppressions under the sun, aren't there? What are then, number three, the effects of this unjust oppression? A single word Tears. In Exodus chapter 2, verse 30, 23, we read how the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage and they cried out. Those millions of Israelites cried out. Remember the Israelites who took advantage of other Israelites? Didn't pay them their wages? Imagine the weeping. That happens of those who they scrimp and they save only to have it all stolen from them and they're left with nothing. 
and there only exists to make money for others. And we might say, jokingly, that describes us. We don't know what that's talking about. We do not know what that is talking about. Imagine in World War II under the Third Reich, the weeping of millions of Jews in concentration camps. It wasn't just men. It was women and children. Imagine them going to the gas chamber. Tears. Imagine the the weeping of millions of children today, right now, who are forced to work, forced to subjugate their bodies for perversion, or even sold by their parents to be powerless slaves? Don't we love our children? We do. And millions of children around this world today are weeping. Imagine the millions of silent cries of murdered infants in mothers' wombs who have their lives snuffed out because they are viewed as a hindrance to my freedom. Imagine the tears of the oppressed that Solomon talks about here. They're all by themselves. They have none to console them. Even the shoulder that they could have cried on has been taken away. This is really hard to grasp, isn't it? This is a frustrating mystery. And number four, as if things couldn't get worse, they have no comforter. What is a comforter? A comforter is someone who consoles, who gives hope, who eases grief and trouble, who strengthens, helps, supports, assists. We have no greater illustration of a comforter than our God and Savior. Because what do we hear in Romans chapter 5 and verses 6 through 8? When we were still without strength, and what's meant by that is helpless and powerless, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But Solomon sees here, that there is no comforter for these. Someone who has power and uses that help, uses that to help the unjustly oppressed. That is a comforter. They have the ability to help and they use it for that end. This should help us see the desperate situation 
that Solomon sees in chapter 4, verse 1. Everyone with power is cruelly using that power. There are no comforters. None. And to make this point clear, he says, look, the tears of the oppressed, but they have no comforter. On the side of the oppressors, there is power, but they have no comforter. To make this point, what does he do? He repeats it, but they have no comforter. But they have no comforter. He hammers the point home. There's a difference between a repeated refrain They have no comforter. They have no comforter. There's a difference between a repeated refrain and nothing but repetition. Some will say, see, they have this refrain that's repeated. And so we can have this repetition in our singing. Well, we have refrains in our singing. And we have refrains in the the scriptures. But they're judiciously and carefully used to make a point. It's not the entirety of it, so it's mindless. A truth is being expressed here. This is the situation that Solomon sees. And so then, what's his conclusion, number two? Therefore I praise the dead who are already dead more than the living who are still alive. Yet better than both is he who has never existed who has not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. Solomon's point here is that from the standpoint of this life, if you have nothing to rejoice in, it's all taken away and you're made to suffer. From that standpoint, it's better off not to have experienced anything than to experience that kind of opposition. This is, this is an important thing to get here. This is something Solomon is observing. He's seeing it happen and he's letting you know, this is what I've seen. And from that standpoint, and that standpoint alone, he's not issuing any kind of correction. He's not saying this is what the right response should be. He's simply saying from that standpoint and that standpoint alone. And you know what? From that standpoint, he's right. If this circumstance, if that's all we consider all by itself, and that's all that mattered was enjoying the fruits of your labor, and they're robbed and taken away from you, then you know what? Verse 2 is right. Dead people no longer have to experience that. And verse 3, those who've never breathed are in an even better position because they haven't experienced any of life's hardships. That's what he's saying here. Remember, these are conclusions Solomon is making from, we could put it this way, on the appearance of things perspective. Okay? And on the appearance of things consideration. Someone who fears the Lord, he has the big picture. But Solomon is giving on the appearance of things perspective and consideration. In verses 2 and 3, 
Solomon is not recommending suicide. He's not recommending abortion, verse 3. Nor is he recommending euthanasia. That's not what he's talking about. He is talking about the timing of life here, not the taking of life. Do you see that? That's important to grasp. The timing of life, not the taking of life. He would never do that. And so his point is, from that perspective alone, you better not to experience anything. So why does he say this? What's his purpose then? Well, he's, not def- he's definitely not considering passages like 2 Corinthians uh, 12, verses 9 and 10. When Paul had the thorn in the flesh and he asked the Lord to take it away three times. He's not thinking about what Jesus said to Paul. My grace is sufficient for you. And so Paul then said, I rejoice in afflictions because when I'm weak, then I am strong. He's not thinking about that. He's not thinking about James 1, verse 2 and following, where James says, when you encounter different trials and situations, count it all joy. Because the Lord is working through that to make you more like Christ. And so seek the Lord. Be faithful. Solomon's it's not ignorant of those things. That's not what he's doing here. Not saying Solomon is pagan or wrong. We have to hear what he's saying. And what he's saying is this. Unjust oppression prevents one from enjoying life's accomplishments. And that's true, isn't it? Unjust oppression prevents one from enjoying life's accomplishments. And that is really hard and impossible to make sense of. The V word, vanity. Unjust oppression prevents one from enjoying life's accomplishments. And this is really hard if not impossible, to make sense of. As I said, Solomon doesn't take time here to address a cure. He doesn't deal with the oppression and the justice. And there are some who said Solomon was wrong. He should have done that here. He was the king. But he's writing a letter. He's writing a thing to help us see This is what life in a sin-cursed world involves and is like. He's acknowledging that this is what happens. And it's hard. The presence of cruel oppression and injustice in life, it makes finding meaning in life difficult. He's not seeking to solve a problem. He's trying to help us see the big picture. So where does that leave us now? A passage like this should help us see. Let me back up. We have been looking on Sunday morning and Sunday, Sunday afternoons. at what the Bible says about itself. A key passage has been 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16. 
It says, all scripture is given by inspiration. And all scripture that is given by inspiration, it is profitable for instruction, doctrine, reproof, correction, discipline, and righteousness, so that you will be a man and woman of God, thoroughly furnished into all good works. Does that apply to chapter 4, verses 1 to 3? It is scripture. It is therefore profitable. Lord, help us to have correct interpretation so that we can have correct application. We're going to look at that this afternoon. A passage like this should help you see God had this written down because he knows the difficult, terrible things that people do to each other. He's not ignorant. He sees it and he knows it. But mental knowledge isn't the same as experience knowledge, is it? We could say to God, great God, I'm glad you grasp that and know that, but you just don't know how I feel. You could be thinking that. You don't know how I feel. I've been oppressed. I've been have things taken wrongly taken from me. You don't know what that's like, God. We had better repent of that. Why? Let's take our Bibles and go to Isaiah. In chapter 53, God not only has a mental knowledge of what we experience, but he has He has an experience knowledge of it as well. Isaiah chapter 53 is a prophecy of what the incarnate son would experience. In verse 2, there is nothing beautiful about him. In verse 3, he is despised and rejected by men. He's a man of sorrows. And equated with grief, he was despised and not esteemed. In verse 4, he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, but yet he was stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. In verse 5, he was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. And then we read verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted and yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shears is silent so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. He's a condemned criminal, and who will declare his generation? Our God knows what we experience. Furthermore, remember the wonderful Psalm, Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd. What? I shall not want. 
And we have verse 4. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Let's finish it together. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Who wrote that? Solomon's dad wrote that. Do you think Solomon knew this? I knew Solomon. I know Solomon knew You know what I mean. No, Solomon knew this. There we go. Psalm 18.6. In my distress, David said. Psalm 18.6. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried out to my God. He heard my voice from his temple and my cry came before him even to his ears. Here's David in distress in tears, he's alone and without comforters on earth, but who does he have in heaven? He has a comforter. Psalm 50, verse 15. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. We have several hymns in our hymnal that are a help as well. My point in all this is we are not hopeless. And that was not Solomon's point to put you in a position of hopelessness in Ecclesiastes 4, 1 to 3. He just helps us to see there's oppression and it causes problems and thinking through things. In the bigger picture of scripture, we know we have a God who's taken on human flesh and has experienced more suffering than we ever will. We have a God in heaven who is our heavenly shepherd and his rod and his staff, they comfort us. He's one that we can go to at any time. A few hymns I encourage you to consider. These are in your Burgundy hymnal. You don't need to turn in there if you want to write it down. Hymn 317 is where I took my uh, title for today's message. Today's message, hymn 317, the, the first stanza says this, Come, ye disconsolate, where'er ye languish. Come to the mercy seat, fervently kneel. Here, bring your wounded hearts. Here, tell your anguish. Earth has no sorrow that heaven cannot Heal. Hymn 69 that we began today's worship with, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. Hymn 69. Jesus, the name that charms our fears, that bids our sorrows cease. Tis music in the sinner's ears, tis life and health and peace. He breaks the power. Of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. And then the hymn that we just sang. Hymn 615. A sovereign protector I have. Unseen yet forever at hand. Unchangeably faithful to save. Almighty to rule and command. He smiles 
and my comforts abound. His grace as the dew shall descend, and walls of salvation surround the soul he delights to defend. Christian, think about your comforter in heaven. He is an all-powerful comforter. Remember, a comforter is one who has power to come to aid and help. And what kind of a comforter do you have in heaven? You have an all-powerful comforter. He is one who is perfect. He gives mercies that are new every morning, specifically created for your definite need right then. He is an all-knowing comforter. He knows exactly the issue that you're dealing with. All I'm doing here is going to some of those attributes of God and applying it to he who is your comforter. And when you do this, Christian, and you're praying, that comforts your soul and helps you. He has, he's all-powerful. He has perfect knowledge. Um, He's everywhere. God in his fullness, he's not scattered, he doesn't scatter his essence so that we get, you know, one billionth of it and the other get one billionth. You have the full attention of the infinite God. And that is your comforter. Your comforter is one who is loving He has given of all that he has for your greatest need. He gave his son. A righteous comforter. What he does is always right and just. And we could keep going on and on and on. As Christians living in a sin-cursed world, we will suffer. It, it will happen. But who do we have in heaven? What did we read at the beginning of the service on the front of your bulletins? Take that out. We read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Look at those two phrases. The Father of mercies. He is not merely one who has some comfort he's able to give. He's the source. He's the Father of all comfort. And the God of the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. There is no comfort, no mercies in this world. You'll never find it. You'll always be disappointed. But in the Lord, the triune God, you'll always find it, and you'll never be disappointed. But there's not a period after comfort. There's a comma. And then we read, who comforts us in all our tribulation, And why does he do that? So that you can sit and be self-satisfied and be happy all by yourself. No, 
that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Christian, we will and do experience hardship. But you are never alone. You have a perfect shepherd. You have an Isaiah 53 Savior. You have the God of all all comfort, the Father of mercies. And he has you going through this so that as you're seeking him, you will then be able to comfort others also.